Hi, everyone. Welcome back to our ninth day of our 10 Days, 10 Mahler Symphonies project here at Attention to Detail. We're coming close to the end. Uh, and I am joined by a very special guest today, one of my good friends, fellow conductor, Sasha Skolnick-Brower, currently studying conducting at Juilliard. And as I gather, Sasha trapped in New York City. Uh, that's right. Yep. I'm in my apartment in Manhattan, and we're just staying in, trying to stay safe. Um, happy to be here talking about some Mahler. There we go. And what's the, uh, give us, a, for those of us who are not in Manhattan at the moment, is it like post-apocalyptic? Uh, I mean, the, the New York Times articles are pretty apocalyptic, and I think they're definitely justified. From my apartment, nothing seems to have changed, but that's, I really haven't gone out much in the last 10 days. So um, luckily, on a day-to-day level, yeah. life, is, life is okay, and we have food and and all that, so so things are fine. But yeah, it's it's scary to, to read about. Yeah, well, I'm glad at least that you're holed up and hopefully, yeah. you know, good for the time being. And yeah, like you said, what better way to spend it than listening, talking to a little bit about Mahler. So today, as you know, as our listeners probably know as well, we're going to be talking about the Ninth Symphony, one of Mahler's most famous symphonies, written in 18, uh, 1908 and 1909 when he was living, of all places, in New York City. Probably, uh, I don't know. I don't know if it was nicer in 1908 than it was now. <laughs> Maybe not. But... Maybe not. But anyways, he was living in New York City. He was serving uh, as, as the conductor of the New York Phil. Um, and at this point in his life, we talked a little about a little bit in the sixth symphony breakdown about how he found out at one point shortly after writing that symphony that he had this irregular heart heartbeat and a heart condition that he thought might ultimately lead to his his demise and so he was increasingly worried about his health at this point and we skipped one of his major works because technically it's not a symphony um, but it really is a symphony Das Lied von der Erde which is uh, this massive, many movement song cycle, um, but really it's symphonic in many ways. But interestingly, Mahler wrote Dasli, didn't call it a symphony, specifically because he was afraid of what's been come to, what people have come to know as the curse of the Ninth Symphony. Beethoven wrote nine symphonies and then died before he could write a tenth. So did Schubert. So did Bruckner. So did. Um, am I missing some? Uh, that's all I know. I, I mean, and people after Mahler continue to be concerned about it too. Um, even those like Shostakovich, right. who, who wrote many more, um, the Nine was definitely something that that added to the uh, the baggage of this piece. I also, I, I believe, his one of his daughters died shortly before this as well. Exactly. Um, yeah. So yeah, as far as symphonies go, a lot of emotional baggage. Yeah, Dvorak, Dvorak had nine. Dvorak. Um, but yeah, so as a result, some people he tried to dodge this, but in the end, he ended up writing a piece that a lot of people have really viewed as effectively a farewell type of symphony or some sort of meditation on the end of his life. The you know, death incoming. And 
It's an interesting layout. In some ways, it mirrors Tchaikovsky's Pathétique Symphony, which is a very similar kind of narrative if we want to take that narrative. Um, all movements, all four movements of this particular piece, unlike a lot of the symphonies we've been breaking down, kind of stand alone thematically, and they're their own unique movement. But interestingly, the layout of the movements is very abnormal. We have two big, slower movements on the out on the outer ends of of this symphony, and two fast movements in the middle, which is the opposite of what we might normally expect. But that's kind of similar to Tchaikovsky's Pathétique, which has this big seeming finale as the third movement, super fast movement, and then it's a super slow actual last movement. So an interesting layout to this symphony and an interesting potential narrative of kind of a farewell to life and coming to grips with with death imposing. So with yeah, that... The only other thing I yeah. to that is that it's just... For me, it's interesting to look at how, maybe we'll get to this later as well, how much smaller the orchestra is for this than coming off, I know you probably talked about the eight yesterday, Yeah. and how enormous that is, and how for this one, he actually brings it back to, I mean, the most noticeable thing is there are only four horns, which for Mahler is like, you know, it's like, it's nothing. Um, and there's no chorus, and I like thinking of that in terms of also how a lot of these great composers at the end of their lives kind of became really comfortable with their style and then kind of realized they could pare things back and not have to use so much material or such a large orchestra. I'm thinking of how Beethoven spent like the last few years just writing string quartets. Right. Um, but I feel like I, I definitely part of the small orchestration is, is the emotional context and it's really this personal farewell, as you're saying, but also I think he just kind of realizes he can do what he needs to do with just a kind of standard romantic orchestra. Yeah, I think that's a very good point, and like you said, in context with the uh, massive Eighth Symphony, it is a very active reduction of his forces. It also makes me think of it is really kind of a distillation of his late style in a lot of ways, and um, I think of Strauss, too, much later than this, but Strauss is Metamorphosin and Four Last Songs and pieces like that really pared down compared to a lot of his earlier work. It's a good it's a good point. So we'll we'll keep that in mind as well as we as we go through some of the music here. So let's start with the the opening of of the first movement. And right off the bat, this first movement seems to have some sort of a program of of this idea of saying farewell to to life. But right off the bat we hear a couple really interesting musical ideas so let's let's hear this opening and then we'll we'll talk about it
it's really atmospheric, but also he defines really clearly kind of what the material is he's working with. Um, the first thing you hear is this rhythm in the in the cellos, oh, oh, which a lot of people have compared to, you know, his heartbeat, and especially considering he had a heart condition. Um, it's kind of a nice way to think about the rhythmic energy of the opening. Yeah, exactly, and that that arrhythmic heartbeat idea is certainly going to come come back, and and so we'll we'll listen for that. And in kind of structural terms for this movement, we hear then a very lyrical, what some people have called this sort of farewell first theme. And so, if we're going to talk about people have analyzed this first movement in a, a a couple of different ways, but regardless of how you want to look at it. We basically have two themes that then get developed and varied. There's a way for us to see it as a kind of sonata. There's also a way for us to see it as kind of a double variation type of movement. If you remember way back to our third movement of the fourth symphony, which was a similar tempo, similar atmosphere, that was kind of a double variation movement as well. But let's hear that other, the second theme that's going to be the other main material of this, this first movement. So there we hear clearly contrasting music. This is what we might associate with the more passionate or pain-filled side to, to this movement and the, the kind of question that Mahler might be answering of how do we say farewell to life. That's not an easy question, and so it's not all going to just be uh, pastoral D major music. We then hear the... Uh, the, the main theme, the first theme, our, our pastoral theme, come back in a much more passionate style. And I want to hear um, towards the end of, if we're viewing this as a sonata, we come to maybe something close to the end of the exposition where we're going to be done introducing our themes. And we get this, this passage that's also going to be important, so we should, we should listen to it. It's based on this second theme material that we just heard, but it has a very different character. And so some people see this as a kind of closing section to an exposition. Others see it as him varying the second theme further. But regardless, it's going to come back. So let's listen to this little portion of music as well. shows us for Mahler how, yes, it's, it's dark, it's in a minor key, 
that for him the difference the difference between a minor and a major key is not huge always and he kind of flips back and forth pretty quickly and for me that's what gives it this kind of ambiguous emotional quality um that's you know kind of heroic kind of tragic somewhere in between um we also heard in that this this more rhythmic figure in the horns and trumpets and that's also going to become really important and kind of drive the rhythmic energy um as the movement goes forward for sure and i think that's an excellent excellent point that we a lot of this piece like a lot of so much of Mahler we've seen how he fluctuates between major and minor the kind of happier and sadder uh directions that music can take and he really blurs those lines masterfully in a lot of these pieces including here so then we we come back if we're seeing this as some sort of a sonata we're we're now in the development and we have to transform and develop the themes that we've introduced and as you heard towards the end of that clip we just listened to it builds the music really builds to get into this development section and i want to play for you the beginning of the development because we kind of hear one of these these sort of cataclysmic moments for Mahler, and then importantly, we'll hear some some material that we've already heard that's going to continue to make more and more reappearances through this movement. So as Sasha just mentioned, we we hear this big big climax, and then uh, we hear this rhythm come back several times, and we're almost in this militaristic martial type character now. We also hear that uh, that heartbeat, boom boom, many times the the sort of irregular foreboding heartbeat, and we hear that figure from the opening. If we remember, we heard this falling idea of. Now it's been transformed, it's being played by stopped horns that gives it this kind of sinister quality. So in the development, like much of Mahler's development sections, we see the darker side of some of, some of this material. Um, so then we hear the, the main theme come back a little more sunny, as we might expect. And this uh, theme develops, it's, it's varied a little bit, and I want to play the very end of this portion of when we hear this uh, main theme return because again it builds to this big climax and I want to highlight one important moment towards the end of this climax one of the many we'll, we'll see over the course of this movement that and of the course of this piece that it continues to build up to these passionate moments and then they kind of disintegrate in some way so here's here's the next one of those
So I think for me, one of the important moments in this, this big, passionate, climactic passage, we hear this figure played by the string section super loudly. And for me, it's hard not to hear, if you remember way, way back to our first symphony. We had the last movement of the first symphony from Inferno to Paradiso. We remember this big dramatic movement. And the second theme, the lyrical theme of that movement went. And it feels to me like he's almost quoting this this spot here. It's like a, a very powerful recollection back to, of all things, his first symphony, representative of his youth, his kind of freshness as a composer. I can't help but but think that. Definitely. And for me, it's kind of fun to think about how other composers reference earlier works. The one that always comes to mind is Strauss um, in, in something like Anhelm Lehmann, who's, who's constantly referencing things he's, he's written before. With Mahler, it feels less about kind of cataloging and showing it to the audience, but it's kind of an internal recollection of something in a way that's really natural. Yeah, I agree. I actually, I failed to mention yesterday on our breakdown of the Eighth Symphony that to me, this, the Eighth Symphony is the one symphony that feels really out of place in a lot of ways in Mahler's output. And there are a lot of self-quotations in the Eighth Symphony. And to me, that that one symphony seems a little bit Einheldenleben-esque, where he's he's looking back and kind of uh, summing up all of his own works. But as you said, most of the quotations that we get in Mahler are internal. They're, they're things that we can potentially use as semantic clues for what something like this means. And so I think it's important that he, of course, he could have ch- quoted anything. He chose to quote this really passionate um, lyrical theme from his earliest symphony. To me, can't help but thinking it, this is a moment where when you're faced with with death, you you know you look back to your your youth as Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So we build to this this big climax as we often do. We then we're still in the midst of the development. We hear our second theme return this time with the marking Leidenschaftlich, which means really passionate in German. We also get some we get some fragmented music that's labeled Schattenhaft, which means shadowy. If we remember, that's the that was the tempo of the third movement of the seventh symphony. We're getting all of these interesting transformations of themes. And let's hear when our main theme, our main theme returns once more in this development section. And let's hear when that returns. trumpets, pom, pom, that, that caused all of this commotion in the development, 
and now it's kind of been reincorporated into the melody in, in the violin parts in a really gentle way and it's kind of a beautiful uh, representation of how he's kind of reconciling all of these emotion yeah that's a great point and it, I think in in this recap in a lot of his recaps we kind of see a lot of his recaps are short and what he does is combines ideas that have been expounded on earlier in a symphony in a very concise way and that's an excellent example so we then get a very important moment where the music the music builds and it builds to a, a, the biggest climax of the m- movement where he writes Hoekstekraft, which means like highest power. And it really feels like we are trying to, to reach something here. And again, maybe this, this frames our previous build to this sort of climax earlier, because again, we hear that same Mahler first symphony quote. But let's listen to this clip and see what happens right after we, we like reach for this really high um or we we have this recollection of youth uh we we reach this big powerful climax So we hear that real cataclysm moment, and again, importantly, we hear that irregular heartbeat come into play. Boom, boom, and importantly, we also hear hear the tam tam. We've noted in previous breakdowns that the tam tam is an instrument reserved, or the tam tam is also the gong is another term for it. It's reserved for really important moments, and particularly moments that are meant to represent death, and so. Uh, clearly this is a moment of, at our moment of highest power, we're also reminded of this irregular heartbeat in the most powerful way, in a way that this is probably bringing death shortly. So we then kind of hear this, we're still actually in the development, um, if we want to call it that, even though we've started recapitulating some ideas, but we hear what's kind of classic Mahler after one of these cataclysms. We hear this very fragmented music. And of all things, he spins into a sort of funeral march. It's even labeled in the, uh, in the score as like a funeral march. In fact, it's the exact same tempo marking, interestingly, that we get first movement of the second symphony, which directly follows, as we mentioned, the last movement of the first and is kind of seen as a, a coda to the last movement of the first. So maybe no coincidence that we hear this quote from the last movement of the first and it's immediately followed by this funeral procession, which if you remember back to our breakdown of the second symphony, Mahler actually has a quote about this movement saying it's like he saw himself lying in state like at his own funeral. And so maybe some sort of... Uh, connection here between the that movement and this funeral procession that appears at the end of the development let's let's listen to that 
because of the way you can really hear how he's transformed that falling that falling second that we had in the beginning. The Tidum now be, has become this really kind of ugly and painful, maybe desperate thing that's that's associated along with the uh, with the trumpets and the and the march like quality, and he's just completely turned all the opening material on its head. Yeah, and like you said, this is kind of the moment of uh, furthest remove from the placid pastoral feeling of the opening that that irregular heartbeat that started so subtly is now coming to dominate the action. So then classic Mahler at this moment of uh, highest drama, we actually get a nice recapitulation to tell us that this may in fact be a sonata. And so we hear our first theme again. But interestingly, as most Mahler recapitulations go, we don't hear all of the material that we might expect. And now that that kind of uh, painful and passionate second theme has been replaced by some music that's labeled Misterioso. And this is an interesting kind of interpolation. And so I just want to play this one little passage for you that comes after the return of our pastoral D major theme. when you just saying that it, it reminds me that in some way I hadn't thought of this yet but the sparseness of this passage and it feels like it's a weird passage in the context of uh, the movement we don't actually know why why it's there but as you mentioned it's cello playing cello and bass playing kind of low with kind of a lone flute piccolo and a, a foreshadowing in some ways of something that we're going to see a lot in the last movement. So maybe this is one of those many passages that we've seen a little breakthrough view into the uh, world that is to come with the fourth movement of this, this piece. I don't know, but, but then we, um, we get uh, a little more nice pastoral D major music wrapping up the movement. And I encourage our listeners to listen to the end of all of the movements of this, uh, this symphony, because with the exception of the third, they all kind of fade out and they they disintegrate and they kind of resign themselves to their own fate. And I think that's v- very non-Mahler-esque uh, in a lot of ways, but a really telling element of this symphony is that so many of the movements kind of fizzle out in a way. Any last uh, thoughts on the first movement? No. All right. Let's roll on to the, uh, the second movement. Um, another really interesting movement after this kind of weighty first movement, we get uh, seemingly, as Mahler so often does, a, a seemingly almost trivial 
type of movement uh, in the second movement and a really interesting movement also to try to figure out what the, if any, programmatic context of this movement is because uh, I read something where people, uh, like critics like uh, Adorno were saying that this is effectively a dance of death. We've seen several of these, these kind of totentants movements. Some of them are labeled that by Mahler. It seems very different from that to me. I've also I've also seen people describe it as kind of a summation of Mahler's dance styles in one movement, which seems more plausible. But do you have any initial ideas about uh, what this movement is doing here? Well, I mean, it, it, people are always trying to figure out pretty neat, neat um, ways of, of summing up something that's really complex. And I think uh, I'm, I also lean towards the second one. I would... I would say what I like about this movement is the awkwardness of it that Mahler brings, and that how that's actually a defining characteristic of Mahler is how he likes to exaggerate these things that are not like homogenous, are not beautiful necessarily, and they're kind of have angles and sharp edges, and and gives a really kind of uh, exciting and interesting character. Yeah, exactly. And we should mention as we start this movement. The first tempo marking we get is etwas tepish und sehr derb, which means kind of clumsy and very crude. So right off the bat, we get this. He he labels it as something that's going to be off kilter, awkward, jagged, as you mentioned. So let's listen to the first theme. Uh, we really get three main dance themes, dance tempos in this movement. So here's here's the first one. interesting because I just find it's we're left wondering uh, why he wrote so much I mean he labeled this music as crude and you would assume that that would have a kind of negative connotation there's some sort of irony in it but I always find that these passages and just the movements where it seems like he's overdoing something end up just being so fun to listen to it's almost hard to not imagine that he just also wrote this because it was going to be really fun music to listen to regardless of what the, you know, the, the more kind of intellectual implications are of including crude music in a symphony. But this is one of my favorite movements just to, to purely listen to because it's so fun in that way. So we then get 
our second, we hear some more of this music and we get our second of our three main dance ideas, dance tempi, dance rhythms of this, uh, this movement. Let me play that one for you as well. excellent point i would i've always thought i would give so much money whatever to be able to see Mahler conduct i think that would be fascinating i mean it just the guy there's uh it's it's documented well documented all that he was kind of tyrannical in rehearsal a lot of times and really demanding clearly because he had an incredible ear and incredible musical mind but also i'm sure his his breadth of knowledge was just incredible because they've actually looked and uh, by modern day standards, he had, you know, one of the busiest schedules of any conductor in history while he was conducting. And so it would really be uh, for for me, probably for you too, Sasha, as a, as you know, budding yeah, conductors to, to get to, to get to see that. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I then we something honestly, I imagine something kind of like Schulte in some of these videos you see of him directing yeah. Wagner where he just goes nuts in a way that is perfect. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. Schulte has a very jerky style of conducting. If people want to see what we're talking about, go watch like a Tannhäuser overture by yeah, Schulte. Right. Um, yeah, it probably looks a little bit like Mahler. But anyway, so we get back. Uh, b- before we hear our third idea, I want to play for you one thing that you were mentioning earlier, Sasha, that we get here as well is kind of a blending of ideas. And so we hear the music of the opening now in our faster, kind of more waltz-like tempo. So let's hear that passage. So 
we hear the the original music in the this faster tempo. He's kind of playing with these these multiple dance tempi ideas, and then we come to our third main dance tempo, dance style of this this movement. A slow Lendler, very different from the Lendler that we had heard before. So here's that that third dance section. Yeah, so in really quintessential Mahler form, again, we get this kind of sappy, slow Lendler. We've heard these before. We heard one in the um, in the third movement of the fifth symphony. We've we've heard them other places, and I'm I'm trying to remember now exactly where, but but we'll recognize this kind of style. And it seems in a way this is more confirmation to the idea that he maybe is in some way saying bye to his his dance movements and recapping so much of what he has done in, in those. Yeah. Especially since the, the lenders at this point were, were like old, old school. Yeah. I don't think people were dancing them. So right. It's kind of a, it's kind of a nostalgic. Yeah. I think that that's, that's actually a good point. They probably were, were no longer really actually dancing these. And so it's like a lot of Mahler's music. It's kind of a, a homage back to, to, earlier Viennese society, but also not even Viennese society, kind of rustic country yeah. society, as you said. Um, yeah, so so then we go back to our fast waltz music. Um, it builds, and then we get an even faster waltz, and we get some new material. I'll play that that for you as well, this kind of random inclusion of this this new idea in the middle of this movement. Yeah, it's for me the one moment where we we kind of get some of the diabolical, more totentance dance, death dance like music that that Adorno was describing, and it seems to for a moment there almost go off the rails a little bit, and then yeah, yeah. I always think of um, it was like ten years after this, but we if you want another example of kind of the waltz or the dance idea going out of control, I always think of Ravel of us. Um, and I get a little bit of that sense in this moment where you just wonder what's going to happen if it gets any more out of control. Yeah. Um, and I, I, the quality of kind of letting loose and in an almost destructive way is, I think, pretty important. I definitely say. Actually, I think there's a lot of similarities between so many of Mahler's dance movements and, and Lavalse and specifically the kind of the buried program in Lavalse, if you want to see it as that, of this kind of... Um, critique of of Viennese society or this view of Viennese society kind of being stuck in in olden times and collapsing at the uh, turn of the century and I think Mahler maybe saw that coming as well um so then we we go back to our slow lendler we get a 
we get a recap of the opening of this movement, um, our first dance that we hear. We go through various iterations of, of more of this movement. Again, the tempo pushes, and we get this big, long section where the tempo speeds up. And then classic Malerian fashion, he clicks it right back into the original tempo once more. And we kind of hear some, like we heard in the first movement, we hear some of some reminiscing of about the opening. And get, it, this gets combined with, with the other dance ideas from the movement as he's kind of in a recap of sorts of, of this material. He's, he's blending it to be even more efficient, even more concise. And like the first movement, it kind of sputters to a finish. So any last thoughts on this, this second movement? Um, the only thing I was thinking about at the very end with all these quick changes and you were saying how he suddenly switches gears back into the slower tempo, it, one, one nice way to think about it that helps me is, is kind of thinking as if it were cinematic, which was actually you know, starting to happen. Yeah. Um, around this time and how suddenly people were able to go from one shot to another without any transition and hearing these kinds of unexpected shifts in Mahler can, can kind of be clarified with that as a frame of reference. I like that idea, actually. I mean, I and it's true, the very, very earliest um, ventures into into movies were, were coming at this point, and so, yeah, it's, it's like quick cuts. Um, excellent. So, so then we move on to the third movement labeled Rondo Burlesque. Um, burlesque is, is, uh, not usually associated so much with a, uh, the musical genre as is the literary genre or the kind of theater, um, genre, but, but there are burlesques in music and, and like other types of burlesques, they're usually associated with with parody, with the grotesque. Um, and interestingly, you know, this is, this. we can certainly see the burlesque element of, of this movement, but Sasha, I'm interested to get your take on, uh, on that heading for this movement because it's, uh, it's, it, you know, I, I hear it, but it's also a little perplexing to me. So, um, yeah. yeah. I, I, it's kind of an, amazing movement because it has this forward direction it's it starts very similarly to um the second movement of the fifth symphony um even the same kind of motive yeah um and yet to me this one feels like it just it's a juggernaut that will just keep going um, yeah in a kind of frightening way in a way the fifth symphony wasn't um i think we get more of the burlesque side later on um but it's definitely the idea of irony and parody is, is really close, close, closely knit in here. Yeah, let's hear the beginning of this movement because I am 100% with you. It's impossible not to hear the beginning of the, the second movement of the fifth similarities with, with the opening of this, this third movement. So here's, here's that opening. Yeah, for me, I actually even just just listening to it this 
this time through, I hear you hear these kind of muted trumpets and some other some other kind of brash elements that he introduces right off the bat, and you can almost hear that burlesque character a little different from some of his other his other pieces. That there's something a little ironic, sardonic about all of the all of the music that that we hear in this movement. But I think, as you mentioned, Sasha. So then we get this kind of there's there's three fugato or fugue sections in this movement that we hear where he plays with this material from the opening in fugue kind of similarly to another one of his his rondo movements the last movement of the fifth but then we um we get this second section the the kind of second theme of this movement and here's i think where some of the burlesque also comes into play so let's listen to this this second theme So we slip into very, very different music from the kind of stormy music of the opening of this movement. Suddenly we're almost in what would be, I think, music from a popular genre at the time this was being written. It's kind of uh, operetta music or seemingly trivial music. And I think that's where some of the parody of this this uh, movement comes in. It's There's a total change of character and it's kind of initiated by suddenly we hear the sound of the triangle and we've changed acoustic spheres, we've changed character spheres, everything yeah. switches. Yeah, what's fun for me in this, unlike in the in the second movement where the different characters were also associated with, associated with different tempos that, that showed us that something different was happening, here it actually just continues seamlessly on and it's kind of like we put on a different pair of sunglasses to see it differently or they've all you know changed clothing but it's the same people there's something kind of funny about how it just goes on and, and before we even realize it's in this different world yeah it's a great point actually because you would expect um you get this yo theme from Mahler you would almost expect knowing the rest of his pieces that he would mark this slower and yeah. specifically it says listesso tempo which means yeah Yeah. Saying, you know, don't rush here, you know, make sure it goes a little faster, slower, and he kind of leaves it alone, which is yeah. fascinating. I was actually noticing that in the eighth when I was reviewing it yesterday too, because I, I the eighth admittedly is the piece that I knew the least coming into this. Yeah. Also very for for such a massive piece, very sparse performance instructions, especially compared to some of the earlier ones. Yeah, it's it's perplexing. Why? But clear, like distillation of instrumentation, distillation of markings, yeah, or I think it's because he's more comfortable and he kind of was a little workhorse, trusting that it will, or he just can't be bothered at this point. Or alternatively, he generally revised a lot of his pieces afterwards, so maybe he just yeah. died before he had the opportunity. <laughs> yeah, yikes! But so, anyways, we hear. Like like we would expect from a, a rondo movement, we hear our, if it's going to go A-B-A-B-A or something, we hear our opening section return again. We hear another one of those fugue passages. 
And then I want to hear, again, an interesting transition into when we come back to some of this popular music again. You'll notice that quick character change again, uh, but this is an interesting stretch of music. I wanted to play this particular passage because it does, for me, sound the most burlesque-ish and really things are just yeah. jumping out. Um, so then we, we again, kind of get our A music again. This time he writes, interestingly, we're not going to hear it because it's hard to hear, but something called a circular fugue, which is a... Um, we don't need to go into that too much, but it's a really, really hard type of fugue to write where... Um, it takes a lot of almost mathematical working out of how you're going to do this. Bach was an expert at this. And so it's like, you know, let me put on one last clinic of, of compositional mastery here in this, this third movement. But then really interestingly, we get this moment, this actually very long moment, this kind of breakthrough moment that we've talked about in other of our breakdowns. And the music completely stops and we get music seemingly from another planet. And I want to play for you a little bit of that, what ends up being, I encourage you to listen to the whole movement and listen to this whole section, but we'll just listen to the beginning of this breakthrough moment where everything comes to a halt and we hear something totally, totally different. Excellent, excellent point. And this is the one, uh, it, this is really the one kind of breakthrough moment that we've had so far in this symphony. 
And importantly, it's it's the one that's going to we know when these happen that they're going to be important. And this one ends up being really important to, as you said, the rest of this movement, but also to the last to the last movement. Um, Yeah. So we hear that that trumpet melody, the lone trumpet melody that plays that turning figure. This also reminds me a little bit of if we think back to the third symphony, there's uh, a similar type of scherzo-esque movement that's flying along um, the third movement of the third and then it comes to this post-horn solo where the music completely stops and we hear this lone trumpet-like instrument. I can't help but thinking of that kind of suspension of of time. So then, classic, after this very long uh, episode, we come back, as Arando does, to the A section one final time. Just like our previous two movements... He kind of blends the themes of this movement together in this last A section. And I'll just play for us the very ending of this movement because it's the one movement that ends quickly uh, and uh, with a kind of seemingly, uh, I wouldn't say triumphant, but definitely burlesque-esque ending. So let's uh, listen to the, the end of this third movement. Yeah, it's just like what 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 just happened. It sped up, bang, done, and then we come to what I I think most people think of as the most important movement of this symphony, and some people's favorites. The last movement, which really is the I think moment, or uh, if the first movement was kind of a farewell to life, if we want to look at it like that, the last movement is kind of the actual moment of death or coming to grips with the actual moment of death and maybe a much more a much less nostalgic and a much more real uh human sense so let's hear the opening of this this movement um where we get one of our two main ideas thematic ideas uh character ideas of this this last movement yeah and you already hear um that trumpet melody we heard in the in the third movement just keep an ear on in the violins. They play it right at the beginning. Right. Um, Let's remind just, that yeah, trumpet and melody. It, for me, it helps to kind of connect the two because the fourth, third ends with such a bang and you kind of don't know how to get into the mindset. But then he gives you this little piece of, of motivic material that we realize has kind of been percolating since the last movement. Right. Remember that turn that the trumpet played of... Sorry, my keyboard turned off. Here we go. That's how the trumpet melody started, and so now let's listen to this last movement beginning.
So the the opening material of this last movement, as Sasha pointed out, the first thing we hear is that trumpet turn now seemingly transformed into what was originally kind of a a peaceful figure of sorts, now a really pained expression of, of something, of outcry. And then we get this incredibly lush, romantic, deep first theme. Um, I don't know, maybe painful, maybe uh, emotional, but only strings, but but really, um, as Mahler marks, with grosser tone, with, you know, huge tone, molto espressivo. Um, any thoughts on this this opening? Just that it, it kind of captures what we were talking a little bit about in the first movement, how he straddles. I guess it's it's a bittersweet quality in essence, um, and he does it really better than anybody else. Something it's it's painful and it's it's warm, but there's you know there's a memory of of something really wonderful, and yet it's also kind of resigned. It just has so much in it that's really inexpressible in words, and I I guess that's why why we like him. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's well said. And so then really interestingly too, I mean, we've been talking about the the heightened contrasts in this movement and we get maybe the biggest contrast in in all of Mahler. We shift from what feels like such a human, such a passionate, such an emotional moment to a moment that feels completely disassociated, that feels um kind of otherworldly, other planetary and that he actually marks without expression in contrast to the molto espressivo marking from the opening. So let's hear that, that second section. back to that to that one moment where we were introduced to a similar kind of uh, really really sparse and mysterious orchestration so so then we hear uh, our beginning theme again really passionate um, I want to play one moment that again refers back to that burlesque movement let's just hear a, a few bars from this section to, to hear one more little thematic connection here
So we didn't actually play the music from the, the Rondo burlesque, but this, this passage almost exactly mirrors a, a passage a little later than what we heard in that, in that breakthrough moment. So again, we're getting a couple kind of thematic connections or allusions back to, to previous m- movements. What to make of them is an entirely different matter, and I'm not so sure myself. But in any case, we hear that kind of disassociated second theme played again, this time with a tiniest bit more expression, maybe, but still in a in a different world entirely. And then we get the, our 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 main theme that returns again, and this time it returns fortissimo, very loud. And I want to play for you, starting kind of in the middle of when it returns, because it builds to this massive climax. And let's listen to, like a lot of the climaxes of the first movement, let's listen to this moment of both seeming joy, pain, emotion, everything, everything you can imagine kind of wrapped into one climax. And it's really, it's the, it's the kind of crux moment of the movement. And you hear that strained passion with, it's very abnormal to have the violins playing by themselves there, but, but really painful, climactic music. So then we hear our first theme again, and we are, we are going through these, these two themes uh, over and over and over. And now, instead of that kind of disassociated other planetary music, we get a kind of replacement of that music. And here to me, it sounds much more like kind of resigned, almost resolved music. And so we don't have that, that kind of music that might be evocative of the moment of death or something, but we've, we've come to a place of potential acceptance. Let's hear some of that music that, that seems to replace our, our second theme of, of ultimate contrast. 
Yeah, to me, we, we hear the same style of music, but, but now we get these harmonies that suggest acceptance, resignation, some form of, of something like that. And so then we come towards the end of the movement and we get this, mar- this marking adagissimo, that means really, really slow. Like our first and second movements, it feels like the air is, is coming out of this music slightly and, um, and we're, we're resigning ourselves to, to the ultimate kind of takeaway of, of this movement, whatever that may be. And let's listen to one important passage in this adagissimo section where we hear kind of the one potential allusion to something that Mahler wrote outside of the seminar. Well, we've made a couple of suggestions, but the one seemingly direct allusion and, and one that can have some implications on what, what we might take away from this last movement. So here's that moment, moment right towards the, the end of this, this symphony. So it turns out that this is actually a very similar melody passage to something that Mahler wrote in his piece, The Kinder Totenlieder, which we've mentioned briefly. We haven't broken down, but a piece that preceded the Sixth Symphony. He was fascinated with these poems on the death of children and weirdly, eerily, creepily enough, shortly after writing this, one of his, his kids died and I want to play for you the, the quick passage from Kinder Totenlieder that mirrors this, this melody in the violins, just so we can hear the connection, and, and then we'll talk about what, what the text actually says there. Just incapable 
Um, and so the kind of tragic irony of having already written music for the occasion is, is just kind of, uh, it's remarkable. Yeah, and you know, it, it just made me think of this idea that in the sixth symphony, his, his tragic symphony, there are these three hammer blows that we talked about. He kind of these, he almost forecasted these three massive developments in his life, his dismissal from the Vienna Court Opera, and then the death of his daughter, and his diagnosis with a heart condition. And it's kind of come full circle almost in the sense that we've heard his irregular heartbeat. In this first movement, we've now heard references to the death of a child and kind of the ultimate resignation that he was this hero in the sixth symphony that would eventually be felled by this this third hammer blow. It's really tragic, as you say, but also kind of poetic. And, um, and yeah, and then we end the symphony in the most quiet fashion. I'm not going to play it because uh, I thought about playing it, but then it's actually, it's too soft. You have to hear it live. It's like too soft to even do it justice in, in the podcast format. <laughs> yeah, I was, it makes me think though of uh, a PSA for our listeners, which is to turn off your cell phones uh, when you go to a concert. Because did you, Sasha, did you read the story about um, New York Phil? Play, when the, oh yeah, I remember yeah. Yeah, um, when Alan Gilbert like had to uh, <laughs> had to actually stop the concert because it was right at the end of this massively poetic and tragic Ninth Symphony. It's super soft, and someone's phone went off, and they didn't turn it off, and so he had to stop yeah. the performance. And this, there's something terrible about it. The poor guy, you know, like just got a cell phone, didn't know how to work it, and then he like couldn't sleep for like a week after that. Yeah, felt so bad. It's it's just a horrible story. But yeah, rough. Especially with this piece. Um, turn off your phone. Have the phone off. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, any final thoughts on on this movement or this symphony or or Mahler in general? Man, I I love it. I love the symphony so much because it's like he has nothing to prove at this point. Yeah. And all of this really touching music, we you know we always think of Mahler's, I mean, these gorgeous melodies and all that, um, which is, I agree with totally. And then here we just get the sense that really he's writing it for himself. Um, and that's why why it's it's so special for me. I, I second that wholeheartedly. And, and uh, yeah, uh, a fantastic piece. I encourage our listeners to, to go check it out if they haven't already. Well... Sasha, thank you so much for, for joining us. We hope you, you stay safe out there in, in the, the epicenter of the coronavirus crisis. Thank you, yeah. yeah. It's been a pleasure to get to listen to talk a little bit about this music. Excellent. Um, and thanks for having me. Of course. Well, we will be back with you tomorrow for a final day of our, uh, our project here. And as always, thanks for listening, and we will, we will see you tomorrow.